0: Welcome to Off Code, the show where we ignore the cultural codes and have real and intriguing conversations regarding the black community and ways we can move forward to human flourishing.
1: Yo, is let's do this.
0: psychopath talking king of my jungle just a gangster stalking living life like I'm
2: sure we're gonna get a copyright strike for this for real but yeah but you know if we could have an opening I would use that opening for today's show and call it numbers numbers because that's what we're talking about we are talking about systemic racism and the numbers behind it doesn't make sense does it not make sense so welcome to off code I am Monique Dusan
0: and I am Kevin Briggins. and um, yeah, this is this is a topic I know a lot of people have been waiting for us to talk about. Um, systemic racism is something that's pretty driving a lot of conversations in our culture, in the media around the idea of racism, and so I think it's a you know a good idea for us to kind of just walk through this. And um, I'm excited for the video that we're going to walk people through because. It's not us simply saying, oh, this is what systemic racism is. This is someone who wrote a book on it, talking about it. And we're going to kind of dissect and break down uh, what he's talking about. So i talking yeah. about numbers.
2: <laughs> So uh, the video actually is from Stanford University School of Business. The interview we and the interviewer will both introduce themselves and we will take it from there. We're going to talk about definitions. How do we look or consider systemic racism from a biblical perspective? We have some words from Thaddeus Williams on that. And then we're just going to be able to go through the um, this video and really just talk honestly about systemic racism. Is it everywhere? Is it nowhere? Is it somewhere in the middle? All
0: right, let's get into the video. Welcome everyone to Leadership for
3: Society, Race and Power. Um, it's my pleasure today to have Professor Charlton McEwan, McEwen. 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 Michael Wayne, I knew I was going to get that wrong. I appreciate the help. Um, he is a professor of media, culture, and communications, and also a vice provost for faculty engagement and development at NYU. He's also the author of two books, Black Software, the Internet, and Racial Justice, From the AfroNet to Black Lives Matter, and also Race Appeal, How Political Candidates Invoke Race in U.S. Political Campaigns. Thanks so much for joining us, Shelton.
1: You are very, uh, very welcome. It's great to be here with you.
3: Great. So last time we talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. Um, and in that session, they told me that I could show up to work and behave how I the way I felt, just be myself. Um, so today, <laughs> I want to jump in and talk about racism. So today, I want to think about how racism affects our lives and, and what exactly that is. So let me start by asking you how do you think about racism? And more specifically, when you use the word racism or hear the word racism, what do you think? What is racism?
1: Yeah, that's a good question to start off with because the the term is complicated and people have varying definitions for it. I'll tell you one thing that I don't believe racism is or the way that I don't like to define it is to purely think about individual people who do quote-unquote racist things or people who we'd say, Uh, might believe or think that other people from other racial groups are inferior in in some way. But that's a common perception about what racism is. So people have uh, heard, no doubt, the terminology uh, institutional racism, structural racism, systemic racism. When I talk about racism, racism for me is all of those three things together, and so let me break it down um, uh, quickly as, uh, uh, as, as clear as I, I can um, and take a, a stab at that. So when I say institutional or structural racism, I'm talking about the laws, the practices, the policies that govern our everyday, everyday lives that produce and reproduce differential access to power, privilege, opportunity, and resources. And that distributes advantages and disadvantages along racial group lives, right? So here's an example. African-Americans and other communities of color have significantly less access to quality healthcare in the U.S. That is something I would define as institutional systemic racism, right? So this comes from, this uh, lack of access, it comes from everything uh, from where healthcare institutions are located vis-a-vis large communities and people of color it comes from uh, historical mistreatment of African-Americans and other people of color by healthcare institutions, doctors, nurses, nurses researchers, scientists. So there are many sources of this um, unequal access, but it is there. So that's an example of what I mean by institutional racism. is an institution that works differently for some people and for African-Americans and people of color Uh, less well than it does so for whites. So if you're still with me, um, institutional, structural racism, I want to talk about one other point, and that's the systemic nature of racism. And when I talk about systemic, that means that racism permeates and connects across institutions such that the outcomes of racist policies and practices in one institution trigger and sustain those in others. And a good example of this is something I carried from maybe the one thing I remember from my undergrad days. But it was an example about how systems work and thinking about a thermostat, right? Uh, A thermostat is a system that regulates temperature. And if we have central air and heat, we go into our thermostat and we program it, we tell it what is our comfortable. Temperature, what it is that we want, what we're comfortable with, what we desire. We set a temperature, and then that system uh, engages with uh, external um, things that are happening. I might have the stove on in the kitchen, I may have the front door open. And so temperature ebbs and flows. And so, in that case, what does the system try to do? It tries to get me back to that temperature that I've set. Let's say that's 70 degrees and so it acts and reacts with a particular aim in mind and that is to get me to a place where i've set and said this is what i want this is what i desire this is what i'm comfortable with and the same way when we think about systems uh and racist systems and so here's the last example and then i'll shut up from this particular question um let's think about covid as a trigger right COVID back in March and April, what changed as a result of COVID? Well, number one, the nature of work changed. And so when we think about the institution of work, of labor, uh, of economics, we know that people of color, African-Americans and Latinx in particular, um, were disproportionately part of those that we deemed essential workers. So had to get up, had to you know transport themselves to work every day, be in unsaid situations. And as a result, what happened? We found uh, eventually that Black and Latinx folks were disproportionately affected uh, by COVID. And so here we have a move from the labor context and institution to healthcare. What else changed? The nature of education changed. We made from in-person to remote learning. What effect did that have? It disproportionately affected negatively uh, black and brown folks. Why? Because of differential access to broadband, to strong technologies that enable people to uh, connect and learn, etc. Those things are a result of many different influences, ranging from geography uh, to um, uh, technological infrastructure and so forth. So, simply as a way of saying, when we talk about systems, then we're talking about racism in one institution that triggers connects across others. All of which set up and work their way into maintaining uh, this sort of status quo of uh, racism or let's say simply the disparate uh, access to uh, power and privilege and resources.
2: Okay, let's hold on right here because he's already said a lot. And I want to make sure that we are all on the same page, that we're understanding what he's saying, that we can also look at this biblically. So he Kevin don't,
0: what... He doesn't even understand what he's saying.
2: <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Tell me more. Tell first, me more. first of
0: all, the slide it when it says systemic racism, racism without racist. That's the first red flag. We and then he gives his definition. His definition is he doesn't believe in actual racism, right? Because he doesn't believe in like a person that is actively acting racist against someone. He doesn't believe in the idea that a person who believes of one race is superior over another, like the actual true definition of what race is. So like
2: means. interpersonal racism.
0: Yes like, like, yes. like when you when you say that person is a racist, nobody's talking about systems. You're talking about their personal belief about people of different skin colors and features. So, for his for him to say that he doesn't he doesn't believe that that is racism, he doesn't believe in the actual pure definition of what racism is, right? He yes.
2: Now, I would also though I'm going I'm going to try I'm I'm going to try to help bring people around to understanding what he's talking about too. Yes, he's talking about. The fact that the the definition of racism overall has changed, so it's no longer the guy who has on like the KKK outfit, or the person who was wearing like the Black Panther, you know, mantra and and shirt and stuff like that. He is talking now about the fact that racism is seen as being embedded into just the structure of America. So when when he's saying, well, we have racism without racists, it's because the system in a way is being seen as taking over for the individual racists.
0: Yeah. And, and let's, let's really talk about what he's really getting at. Mm-hmm. He's really talking about outcomes. He's talking Disparate about the, yep. disparities within outcomes is really what he's talking about. He's basically even makes Kendi's little brother. So mm-hmm. Basically, anytime the system produces or any anytime there are unequal outcomes, it is automatically he's going to talk about this in a second it is automatically given to the fact that it is due to racism within the system right yes.
2: Yes. So as he defines institutional racism, talking about there's racism within the institutions that's embedded within the institutions. It is there whether you have a person participating or not. And that is upheld or seen, verified when there are disparate outcomes. Mm -hmm. Now, when he talks about systemic racism, what he's saying is that the. The the racist system of the judicial system would impact the racist banking system because there's a disproportionate number of black men in jail. You have a disproportionate number of black men who are turned down for home loans or you have a disproportionate number of Black men in jail. So then you have a disproportionate number of Black men who can get certain types of jobs because they might have a criminal record. Yeah. So what he's saying is he's saying that the jail system or the judicial system is also impacting the employment arena or the housing and, and banking arena. And so when these um different institutions... Bump up against each other and cause disparate in, in um disparate impact, which is the the unintentional or the unseen um disproportionate outcome or disparate outcome when you have disparate impact between these varying institutions, you now have a system in place.
0: Yeah, yeah, and also what this is really, and this is kind of the not saying he's intentionally been misleading, but this is where this whole conversation becomes misleading. What he's really talking about, what they're all really talking about isn't race, it's class. And this is why. Because when he talks about blacks have less access to health care, he's talking about a particular section of the black community, right? He's talking about low income, a middle, upper, middle class. You don't have any less access to health care than a white person that's in the same economic class or neighborhood or whatever. There's, that doesn't exist. And so the fact that 22% of the Black per- population lives below the poverty line, there are going to be things that, quote unquote, affect Black people more because you only have, I think it's 9% of the white communities in poverty. And you know, there's more numbers. Numerically, there's more white people that are poor, but in percentage of mm-hmm. population, it's a lower percentage. And so well, this, this is when they start talking about rates, right? We're not even going to talk about actual numbers. They get into this whole race. Blacks are three times more likely, blah, blah, blah. It's because 22% of the black population is poor, right? And so a lot of these things, they talk about, oh, it affects people of color more. It's not that the policy or the system is doing things along racial lines. It's doing it along class lines, but blacks are more affected because we have a higher percentage of our population that is poor. Now- so if you say, okay, so what is the cause of poverty? That's a whole nother conversation. It is. Because when I look at the fact that only 9% of married Black couples are in poverty, right? So 91% mm-hmm. have in poverty, right? Only mm-hmm. 9% in poverty. Mm-hmm. But I look at the fact that only 30% of the Black population is even married, right? We talk about 72% of children born out of wedlock in the Black community. So we have a poverty issue because we have a single motherhood issue, right? And so that's a whole nother conversation, but just to say that these numbers are really affected along class lines. Yes. A, a poor white person that works in the fast food industry had to go to work just like a black person that works in the fast food industry. It's not, race has nothing to do with it. It is simply class lines. So.
2: Yes, I I do agree. And I think, I don't know if it was Thomas Sowell or, um, or Robert Woodson, who talks about um, deracializing poverty. hmm yes. And desegregating poverty. De- yeah, desegregating po- poverty. And what happens, what those statistics become once you take this whole race conversation out of it and look at things along the line of class. When you look at it along the lines of, you know, purely just income what you'll find by and large is that things kind of equal out it's you're going to get you know those Mm -hmm. who are in poverty regardless of ethnicity all struggle with the same thing so
0: yes absolutely
2: drug addiction um domestic violence gangs all of that tends to sit at a certain socioeconomic level that is not seen at a middle class level Okay, so we have his definitions of systemic racism in looking at, you know, he's not talking about interpersonal racism. So the racism that's between, you know, two people or the individual racism that's something that's like hidden in the heart of a person. He's talking about how institutions kind of collude together intentionally or unintentionally to be able to create systems that create. outcomes that are disparate in regards to black and brown people. Is that clear? You got it? All right. We good? Okay. Clear as mud. Clear. Right? Because (laughs) when it all comes down to outcomes, you have to ask the question, well, where where do we see things that are completely the same? Anywhere. 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 It's not... I mean, even... It's, it's not that he's arguing about the access to opportunity. He's arguing specifically about the outcome. And so yeah. if we all, if we have to have the outcome be the exact same, I'm, I'm confused as to where we see that at. Okay. Oh, I have a ton of notes. Let's keep going. We're going to look at the next section. Um, Cause we will keep you here all day. Go ahead. So it
3: sounds like you don't um, you're not making any distinction about how these disparate impacts occur, right? So is it in the way you just described it? It's is any disparate impact is any difference in the outcomes of black folks and white folks and Latinx folks is that always an indication of racism from your perspective? From my perspective,
1: yes, um, and I think that you know what people typically want to uh, sort of suggest or ask in this kind of context is you know what about the role of the the individual right are these simply things that happen or are people causing them to happen and you know most of the time i simply like to leave individuals out of it not because individuals don't play a role but i think we get overly concerned with individual people and thinking okay if this person only a person who is racist themselves can impact and make all of these other kinds of institutional systemic racist uh, practices happen or work or um, uh, lead to these kinds of disparate uh, outcomes. Um, And so what I'd like to focus on mostly is the outcome rather than motivation or intent of individuals that may or may not drive those particular outcomes.
2: Okay. Hold on. Let's really talk about what he's saying because To a degree, I understand that there could be a system in place that may have been in place for five years until a director of an organization left. And then that was just the way that they kept going, you know, three years after that director, you know, left. And now you have this outcome that's unintentional. So it's a a disparate impact, even though it wasn't disparate treatment where it was intentional. So, I mean, it, it I, I can stretch my imagination to be there a little bit, but to not look at the individual and, saying, and not, go ahead.
0: You're saying this is where you see the ideology really play itself out. I mean, what does CRT teach, right? It is simply embedded within the system, right? And so there's no need to talk about individuals because it's not even about individuals. It is simply about the system. And because he believes in the ideology, he doesn't even have to prove that any racism existed. It is simply the fact that there is a disparate impact. Therefore, racism was there, not because he's proved it, not because he has any evidence of it, simply because he believes a particular ideology. Right.
2: Well, you bring up critical theory and the goal uh, or critical race theory, but critical race theory is just a critical theory. And so the goal of critical Mm -hmm. theory, especially when we look at somebody like Horkheimer, it's to critique society and then to offer a solution to that critique. And so when you think of systemic racism, what they're doing is when you find any disparate outcome, where the person being impacted is a minority. Because trust me, nobody looking at disparate outcomes for white people. Yep. But when you find that there's a disparate outcome toward a minority, you say, aha, here's a disparate outcome. Ha ha, this is an injustice. We need to change the system. Yep. Instead of looking and saying, okay, there's a disparate outcome. I wonder what the the reasons for this are starting with the individual maybe it's not a system issue maybe there's a disparate outcome because me and i'll just take let's say you know 100 black women aren't aren't married and so now we have this whole system uh against you know unmarried black women and why they aren't married but maybe we just have chosen not to date or maybe we have you know I don't know, something else on Friday nights when most people go out. I have (laughs) no idea, but I can't automatically jump to the idea that because I'm an unmarried black woman and there's a hundred of us, there's some kind of marginalization happening, some type of oppression happening without data for that. Your disparate impact, Um, disparate impact or disparate outcome simply can't be your data. It can be a number in the set, but you have to prove what your claim is. You can't just look at the outcome and now make the claim.
0: Yep. And that's why it's, it's a very lazy ideology because they don't have to put any work in. It is simply, oh, here's a difference in outcomes. Boom, racism. There's no work put behind that, Right. Um, Also, I don't know if you noticed, but when he talked about individuals, he didn't want to talk about individuals in terms of who's committing racism. Like, he didn't want to talk about the individual who might be behind the scenes doing the racist part. He didn't want to get to those individuals. He didn't even think about the person being impacted in their individual actions. He wasn't even he wasn't even on that side of the fence. His mind didn't even go there. He's only look. he's so engaged in the system he's talking about. He don't want to talk about the individuals within the system who's running yeah. the system. He doesn't want to talk about that.
2: But it overthrows the narrative. So if I look at the individual and I see, oh, well, Freddie over here has been holding all the applications, you know, from Asian Americans. Let's get rid of Freddie. You know, that would quickly solve an issue that may be of a micro system. But if I look over here and I say, well, there's no Asian-Americans even applying. So it's not that there's a system creating this disparate outcome. We need to find out why Asian-Americans aren't applying. Or if we look and we say, well, you know, there are a number of, you know, blacks who have been turned down for home loans. And we look and we see, well, you know, this is the credit score of most, you know, people within, you know, this category, or this is the general income, or, you know, most people are applying for homes that are $5 million. There, it, 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 it doesn't make sense if you're not also looking at what an individual is doing, because a lot of times it could be an individual. And then also, what do you do with human autonomy at Mm -hmm. that point too?
0: Yeah, they simply pretend that human actions do not matter. It is everything is simply controlled by the system, and the person is simply a victim or kind of almost like a puppet of the system. And so it doesn't matter if um, I'm applying for jobs, but my resume is really messed up and I switch jobs every three months for the last five years. Like
2: that doesn't. Name misspelled, never. Yeah.
0: uh Yeah. It doesn't matter that. I wasn't on time for the interview or cause no, that's whiteness to be on time.
2: You know, Um, that's right.
0: (laughs) Like none of these things matter. It is simply, Oh, black people are hired at this rate. White people are hired at this rate. Therefore it's racism. Right. And they never look at the individual behavior that led to the outcome or could have led to the
2: outcome. It is simply the system. Yes. I think. Yeah. You're, you're spot on with it. Yeah. All right. Should we keep going? Let's, I, I don't want to, but let's go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here we go.
3: I, it seems that things have changed a lot in this country, right? So when people will point to things like the civil rights movement, desegregation, um, There's a. there's been a lot of positive changes. And in your example of the thermostat, you could think about that as where the setting is on the thermostat, I, or you. I wonder how you think about that. So who sets the thermostat? how do you have a sense of where it's set if like we stay with that metaphor or is it being set by a group? Like, how do I think about that metaphor in terms of the setting?
1: Yeah, that's uh, it's a good question. I think it's, it's set. I mean, number one, I think we have to take into account history and historical context, right? And so the depths in which race and racism are institutionalized and uh, part of the structure of uh, the U S and in some ways, even Um, The world comes from history, comes from the sort of founding of uh, the country as a fundamentally racist country who did not see uh, non-white people as fully human and developed policies and practices that supported and went along with those things. And those things, though they loosened over the years as we moved from slavery to Reconstruction and into the Civil Rights Movement and so forth, Many of those policies, practices, sentiments, et cetera, the ways we think and view uh, our relationship with uh, uh, non-white people um, all linger and continue in particular ways. So in one sense, we can talk about uh, historical context as being uh, a driver. And then there are very real um, senses in which people Decision makers, people who are influential and at the head of uh, major institutions that govern our lives, perpetuate racism in those particular practices and decisions uh, that they make. Um, I like to talk about this. Um, you know, some this is kind of the direction that I took in uh, my book, uh, Black Software, which of course looked at race. And technology, and particularly the origins of that, and that's something that I get into quite a bit there, where it's it's very clear and laid bare where the origins come from, because they are uh, when we look back to the early mid '60s and the development uh, height of the de- development of computing, uh, the height of the civil rights movement. Um, you see where these two things clash. You see where people made very specific decisions to say hey, we have new technology, we have new powers of computing here. Uh, What problems do we ask them to to solve? Um, How do we put these new uh, technologies to work? Um, And some of those first uh, problems were literally the problem of Black people who were out in the streets um, fighting for their civil rights uh, in many different ways. Um, And the leadership of the country uh, from the president on down to the head, of major corporations, tech companies, and so forth, who gathered together and said, here's how we can go about using these technologies to solve this particular problem of crime, which was, in no uncertain terms, a, a problem of race, and in really clear terms, the problem of uh, blackness uh, at the time. And so I think a confluence of those factors, history, uh, and present day um, workings of people who had institutions that have the power to uh, continue to reproduce and uh, produce the new uh, these sorts of racist structures that lead to uh, very different uh, kind of outcomes when we look uh, across the spectrum of race.
2: Okay, hold on. <laughs> okay. I, t- At some I, to- point- I told you I didn't want to keep going. At some point, I just felt like I was in one of them Charlie Brown cartoons. I'm like, (laughs) he said, if, 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 okay. The bottom line was that technology is racist. My phone, I told you my phone overheated the other day. I felt like it was a byproduct of whiteness. It
0: it was. You weren't victim. But,
2: okay. If we go back to this whole thermostat metaphor, it's a horrible metaphor. The thermostat. So what he's saying is that the country's temperature is set on racism. Yes. And that when we get too hot or too cold away from this thought of racism, then it adjusts
0: itself to get back to the point of racism. Yes.
2: (laughs) See, I thought I was making it. I was like, I was like, surely I didn't hear this.
0: No, it it self-regulates itself back to racism because that's the way the system.
2: That is part of. I would venture to say critical race theory is it that is. it, that it racism is fluid and and malleable. And so it adjusts to be able to perpetuate the advantage of white people.
0: And once again, you don't have to prove that you just have to yes. believe it and you will constantly find the racism. And there's an ongoing cycle that you can never get to the end of. Yes. Which we're going to get to hopefully because he gets to that point himself. At the end of the video. Yes. But I will say the whole technology is racist thing is.
2: Please make that make sense. I, I can't make it make sense. I can just try to
0: make it make. I can try to explain what he's trying to say. Yes. He's trying to say that because they use technology. Uh, in his case, he said during the civil rights movement within law enforcement to crack down on crime and certain other things. And in his mind, crime meant blackness, right? So he's tying those two together. And so technology was simply used to combat blackness within law enforcement. And so therefore technology is racist because it was used for a racist purpose. Now, the question is, if you weren't out there committing crimes, or if you weren't out there in the streets, then what were how did this technology uh, uh so it's one of those is the technology responsible for you being arrested and that's racist? Or are your actions in responsible for you getting arrested? Like that's that's the point when you when you don't look at an individual, you don't look at actions, you simply say Oh, black people are overrepresented within the criminal justice system and the prison population. Therefore, it is racist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Without cons- asking the question, why do black people make up fifty percent of all homicides? Like yes. you can't you can't get to the, the the prison issue and the criminal justice issue without looking at the actual committing of crime, violent crime at that. Mm-hmm. You right? You talking about murders? Yes. Um and so that's just one of those things of it's just the ideology is already built in to not even look at that. That's why I say it's lazy, because from an analyst standpoint, so I'm i I'm, I'm an analyst and researcher by trade. If you're not looking at all the data and you're not taking all the data into consideration, and if you're coming to the data with your preconceived notions, which critical race theories that already built in notion of the system is already racist. You haven't done any real analysis. That's why their books are horrible. That's why all their writings are horrible because they don't take any real look at data. They don't ask any from a scientific perspective. They don't look at the data and ask why they already have the why in their mind. And the data is just there to back up their why, their preconceived notion. No, no scientist, no data analyst can go into a problem set with that mindset and they, they think they come up with an accurate uh, reflection of that data, right? It's just already biased and tainted by their bias and the way their ideology, what they're bringing to it. And so that's why they want to talk about history. They want to talk about a certain aspect of history, because mm-hmm. it, it it plays into their their biases, right?
2: See, I was gonna bring up because he goes back to history a lot, oh, and yes, so there there is a a point or a part of history in which I can agree and say, yeah. You know, if you lived in the south or even in some places in the north, could they have used like if he's talking about facial recognition or you know security cameras or whatever to try and pinpoint you somewhere or to say, well, you were walking late, and so we think that you're connected with this, especially in the Jim Crow time, or I don't even mm-hmm. know if they had cameras in Jim Crow time, but you
0: he know, said like, this he said this new technology came yeah. on and so this is the thing. He taught when he went through history. He stopped at a very particular point. I know
2: that's it. what I was gonna say. Yeah, I was the, gonna say the same thing. He went thing. to
0: slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, et cetera. What's the et cetera? Right? If Jim Crow ended in 1965, the Civil Rights Act, in 1964, right? What 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 is the systemic racism since that point? Right.
2: Well, here's the thing. He talks about slavery. He didn't really talk about Reconstruction because blacks did better in Reconstruction. They did, they did. Then he went over to Jim Crow, civil rights, and all that. But it's like that ends it, and then
0: we, we're 2023 was 60 years beyond that. Yes. What is these? What is the quote unquote system in place since Jim Crow? That is,
2: I okay. Honestly, I I do think that. In America, there were de facto systems, and I think it's important to, to differentiate between de jure and de facto. Mm-hmm. So de facto being systems that were not codified into law, but just you know me and Pookie and them, we got we know we're gonna participate with white people this way, or white people know they're gonna participate with black people this way. So let for example, let's look at a um a bank. And so this bank may be filled with all white workers. They know it's like, let's say it's 1970. So we've already passed like the civil rights, you know, um, laws and all that stuff. And But this bank knows that they don't want black people to bank at their establishment. So they set up a system in-house without laws or, you know, mandates and bylaws and things like that. And they set up a de facto system so black people can't, you know, bank at their bank. De jure would be something that is actually codified into law that says it is legal to separate out blacks and whites. It is legal to say that this can be a white only bank. So do I think that shortly after the civil rights time, there were de facto systems still in place Yes. But I think to your point, Kevin, in 2023 America, are we seeing part and parcel, like widespread de facto systems all across the board? I don't think so, because for his for his um, and he talks about this a little bit later. I'm not actually sure if we're going to be able to get to that part. But he talks about the facial recognition software and how it's used specifically to trap black people. But to your point, it's like, well, how can it, if you didn't want to be caught, you shouldn't have been doing it. But what do you do? And I know this is going to be a, a controversial point, but what do you do with the January six people who also had their faces recognized? Yeah. It was white. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the facial recognition software is working both ways these days.
0: Yeah. It, there is no, cause first of all, he said, he, he said it was to identify people by race. And I was like, what is he talking about? I like, what technology identifies people by race? Then I was wondering, is he talking about facial recognition software? Then he eventually got to a point where he said that. And I was like, "You facial recognition software does not, does not distinguish people by race. That's not how that it works. That's not what it does, right? And so it's one of those things of to simply say that, and, and forget all the other ways technology has increased our society, right? But that's what I mean by focusing on one aspect. Mm -hmm. And so, because he wants to focus on this one aspect, he can argue that technology is racist because of this one thing about facial recognition software.
2: And because that software creates a disparate outcome for a certain group of people. Yes. But it doesn't look at who are the groups of people who are committing the crimes to be able to make the disparate outcome. And are those crimes actually happening? Yes. yes. If the crimes aren't happening and black people are being taken in for facial recognition software at higher rates and it's always, no, these people are always innocent, well, then maybe I'd ask other questions. And it doesn't matter if it's black or white or Hispanic or whatever. But are, are the people doing what They're being accused of.
0: Yes, and this is why he doesn't want to talk about who behind the system. Because we're talking about the justice system. And one thing we know in these big urban cities, right, they typically have black mayors. They typically have black police chiefs. They typically have black city councils. They typically have black school board superintendents and black school boards. So he doesn't even want to talk about the who, the individuals behind it, because it's not going to meet the narrative. He simply wants to look at the outcomes. And so even if you have a black police, they'll say that black police chief is simply continuing on within whiteness. He is Mm -hmm. simply continuing within the white supremacy system, even though he's a black police chief. Right. And so to them, it's all about the outcome. And if the outcomes produce a disparate impact, boom, there's racism
2: regardless of even if it's controlled by all black people. So, what do they do if there's a disparate outcome toward a white person or toward the? Oh, that doesn't, uh, matter. The... That doesn't matter. I
0: had I had this conversation online today. We were talking about because I use I always like to use the NBA as an example. Mm-hmm. Do we need diversity, equity, inclusion in the NBA? Do we need mm-hmm. Do we need campaigns to push for more whites and more Asians within the NBA? And the person said, "No, the NBA is based on talent." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Hmm, hmm, yeah. so." And I was like, and so I, was, I used to take industry. the show that the tech industry is run by Asians and Indians. So are we only looking at desperate impact or diversity, equity, inclusion when the spaces are majority white? Because mm-hmm. no, nobody's telling HBCUs they need to be more diverse and inclusive. I'm just, I'm just being real. Mm-hmm. And so, and so to answer your question, yes, the answer is only when the disparate impact affects people of color or minorities, is it ever an issue? If we're overrepresented in an area we think is positive, that's not an issue. Um, it is only when whites are, or even let's go gender males, right? They will say, you know, we need we need more women in STEM or we need more female CEOs, but they never say we need more female roofers or more female plumbers or okay. they, they bricklayers you know yeah. they <laughs> oh,
2: that, that, that's how you the sun you know, that's it's hard it's, work. It's, yep. it's, a, it's a very
0: selective
2: yeah
0: it's a very selective categories in which they want to apply these things to because if they were consistent across the board it would look a whole lot different but they're not they they're only choosing to highlight areas where they believe white people are the advantage or the minority or the majority um or men are. And so they attack these things based on those categories. But for instance, they never say, so they will say the prison system is racist because blacks are overrepresented. Well, is it it sexist as well? Because men are overly represented? I mean-
2: I hope not, because I sure don't want to go to jail.
0: I'm just saying, they will say, they will say, no, men commit more crimes. Yes.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yes. (laughs) I mean, at some point- you, you, you can't make it make sense. You
0: can't make it make sense, mm-hmm. right? They can't be consistent within the ideology because the ideology doesn't make sense. It just does It's not consistent. But logic and reason is whiteness. So that, I'm just using whiteness and they, that's that's the problem. That's that's why I can't see it. I don't have a problem because I'm stuck in whiteness of logic and rational, objective, linear thinking.
2: So what Kevin is talking about is an infographic that was released in 2020 from the... Smithsonian Institute it's let me re- see if I can remember the name it's the National History Museum of African-American art and culture I believe um, but it's a, one of the Smithsonian Institutes and they released a what is whiteness infographic and so on this infographic what we see is how whiteness is being defined you have rugged individualism and um, the family structure. So having a a husband and wife and a two parent family, this is considered parts of whiteness looking at um, emphasis on the scientific method. There we go. I I cannot see this. (laughs)
0: Okay. It says objective, rational, linear thinking cause and effect relationships and quantitative emphasis. So anytime you're thinking rationally, you're thinking objectively, you're doing like cause and effect logic, you are exempt, You are, are showing examples of whiteness. And so yes. when I'm questioning what this guy is saying or when I'm questioning the ideology and I'm saying, hey, this is inconsistent, we're not applying this across the board. Um, when you're using logic, when you're using rationality, they would say, oh, that is whiteness, that is white culture. Um, and it's simply a defense mechanism to keep them away from criticism at the end of the day. Yes. That's all it is.
2: But should not we... As black people feel some kind of way about that? Like, am Uh I not supposed to be rational? Am Uh, I not -uh. supposed to be logical in my thinking? Is that only reserved for white people?
0: Yes, because think about it. They simply want you to be emotional because your feelings and your um experiences should drive what is true, right? Mm. Right. So they just want you to be a don't don't think, don't be logical, don't be rational. Don't do anything. Simply go off how you feel, your emotions, and then your experiences will determine truth. And then we need to listen to black voices. Need to listen to your experiences because you've experienced racism, haven't you? Right. Which is
2: part of that that narrative tenet in critical theory and in critical race theory in bringing in the the counter story. Yes. Having a counter story to the current story that's being um, that's being put out there because the current story would be something of logical thinking or it goes against the experience of the person of color.
0: Because they would say the dominant story is simply the product of whiteness. Mm -hmm. It's not about they don't believe in objective truth. They simply believe truth is relative to experience. And if someone has a quote unquote different experience, they have a different truth, then that's the truth we need to be putting out there as opposed to what they they, they just don't believe in facts. They don't believe in logic. They don't believe. Well, only only in their own instances, because like I said, they want to use data when they want to use data. Mm-hmm. Right. But only when it fits their particular narrative. Uh, but yeah, that's that's really what it is. It is a very unintelligent. Um, and I just asked so I listened to an interview recently. I'm going a little bit off, but it was from it's a okay. Jew. It was a Jewish Marxist. This guy was a hardcore Marxist and he hated the woke movement. And he said oh. it is completely unintelligent. And, uh, I was caught off guard because this guy is a hardcore foundational. Like he loved W.E.B. Du Bois writing. He grew up oh, wow. I- idolizing Angela Davis.
2: Uh-huh. But
0: when it came to Kendi, Coates, You know, uh, Nicole Anna Jones, all these. He said it is the most unintelligent writing you can find. Wow. Yeah. And so that really, yeah. And so, um, yeah, it, it really is very unintelligent when you just read it and you or when you listen to them talk, it clearly doesn't make sense. We're sitting here dissecting it just from a basic level of let's just see how this applies across the board. Let's just see. And there is no way you can really hold to this if you really thought it through. Um, And so just I know I kind of went off a little bit there, but just kind of to say that the whole the whole framework is a very inconsistent, irrational, illogical, unintelligent framework.
2: So you ain't mixing no words today. Okay, I don't know what to tell you. you, I don't know what to tell you. Let's finish um, getting through this video so we're not keeping these people all day.
3: <laughs> all right. And how would you have people organize? So right now, there's a lot of energy, right? So we, it has we, there's people on the streets. What would you have people do if it were up to you and you were driving this and you wanted to change the setting on thermostat or you wanted to really com- fundamentally alter the system? What is it that people should be focusing on? What should they do?
1: Um It's a hard <laughs> it's a hard question. It's a hard question. Um you know, and frankly, you know, I'm I'm of the mind sometimes in certain moods of, you know, you gotta burn things all the way to the ground before you build them up the way you want to go again. Um, and thinking about that in ways that mean deep fundamental structural change that comes from a lot of hard work of not only organizing. But trying to address and change laws. So it might be folks that are uh, going into elective office because that's the way to uh, uh, specifically address and try to change laws on the ground. It's uh, trying to compel people to produce knowledge and data that demonstrate and show that uh, things are going wrong and in the wrong uh, direction. And so Um, So I think there's a lot of things people should uh, do. I think educating themselves about what the problems are. I think uh, finding an organization uh, that is deeply committed to fighting these injustices, and there are many. There are legacy ones like uh, the NAACP, uh, Lawyers Committee, um, many um, groups depending on whether you're interested in criminal justice or housing or what have you, there are new ones, there are old ones. Um, find an organization and a group of people that can help you engage and channel, um, you know, your action into in a very substantial, um, in a very substantial way. Um, but it, you know, I, I think, participating engagement has to be uh part of 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 the solution um but frankly you know it it's hard to know what what to do at any given moment and I think that's you know part of the legacy of racism of seeing and thinking and looking out on things and saying man this is just too damn hard to do anything about and so going fishing
3: because yeah. <laughs> I mean man it sounds it sounds both tough and scary. You say I'm talking about burning down, like you know, your life seems pretty comfortable, right? My life feels pretty good, right? <laughs> right <laughs> right here. so um, burning it down, you know, that's that's a tall order. And there are people who are even obviously better off. People would have even more resources to benefit from sure. it, as it is. Like, how do you get people to? I mean what does that look like? I mean, how does, how do we even start that? I mean, are we, are we destined? Are we trapped in this cycle of, you know, some change as things look look dire and then we get a little bit of change and then we see the system countering that and then we do it all over. Are we just stuck in the cycle? I mean, that's what really struck me about your, your book is that when you talk about the sixties, I mean, it looks like we're going through the exact same thing, right? If we're lucky, I mean, that yeah. assumes yeah. there's actually some change. And you could say the same thing. you go back further, you could talk about reconstruction. It looked similar, right? And different. I mean, there are always differences, but it looks cyclical, right? It looks like, yeah. you get some fundamental change, what looks like fundamental change, and the system responds, people being what they are and are we just in that moment is that is that what this is right now we're in that we're in that crisis moment and we just assume that if we're lucky we get 5 10 15 years of some you know incremental changes then we're back
1: yeah and maybe you know I've, I've become more and more comfortable with incremental change um and you know pessimistic still on the fact that incremental change means that what fundamentally is still kind of persists in a way. Um but I think the history of, you know, as you said, this is this is not new. This is something we've been fighting against for a extremely long time. And there have been significant change. Um, you know, there's a day when you and I wouldn't be doing what we are doing. Um that folks wouldn't let us, we wouldn't be equipped to, so on and so forth. So things have Certainly changed, and those have been changes that have been incremental. There have been changes that have come from um, major moments of uh, taking uh, advantage of opportunities, taking advantage of people uh, being focused on the problem that uh, confronts us and faces us, taking advantage of moments when people's uh, goodwill um, and allyship was there and ready to be. Uh, Marshall to move things forward. And I think that that is what we count on. We take uh, advantage of the moment and the opportunity um, that we have. And, um, you know, I remember back, uh, I think it was last November, sometime, it was right when the book came out and um, did a book talk uh, here at a big bookstore, The Strand. And a uh, friend and colleague, Rua Benjamin, who's also written. Uh, a, a great book, several great books about the intersection of race and technology, professor at uh, Princeton. Um, uh, she was gracious enough to come and be my uh, uh, sort of interlocutor at that uh, event. And, you know, we got talking about this question of optimism and pessimism. I said, you know, we are, uh, it, it's hard for.
0: Yeah. So he said a lot. So he started with. The typical response of that we know is burn it all down. That is the revolutionary spirit behind critical race theory. Anti-racism is that whole system of whiteness must be torn down. That's where critical theory is designed to do. Critical race theory is just an element of that. It is designed to critique something until you tear it down. It no, it no yes. longer exists until you fundamentally change it.
2: Yeah. Marxism looking at the whole capitalistic system. Yes. And
0: so I found it very interesting that he said he's become more and more comfortable with incremental change because that's typically against their motto. Mm -hmm. They want the revolution. But he said he's become more and more comfortable with incremental change. But what bothers him is that he knows what was built still exists. And that is just so key to this whole framework Mm -hmm. what is built still exists what is what was built it is the entire american framework and system i don't care if it's individual rights liberty Mm -hmm. meritocracy liberalism the whole thing in their mind must come down because america is fundamentally racist at its core all that is the single narrative they live by And so no matter what else America has stood for, no matter the founding principles, it can only go back to being one thing that kind of defines it in their mind. And that's racism. Go ahead.
2: Yes. It when he, when he moved over to incrementalism, it reminded me of the long march through the institutions Mm -hmm. that we don't like it. This isn't really, you know what our plan is, but it's going to take a long march through the institutions Yep. To be able to bring the change.
0: Yep. And for people who might not understand, no, Marxism was a very revolutionary um, framework. And the fact that the revolution did not take place within the West, they had to kind of make sense of that. Mm -hmm. And they realized that there were cultural institutions that kept the West from the the proletariat, the poor people from raising up against the rich people. Right. And they decided that they needed to infiltrate and change those cultural institutions whether it's the church, Christianity, uh, the uh, academia, education system, all of these institutions had to be infiltrated. And so they had this thing they called the long march through the institutions because they knew eventually they had to change the institutions if they were going to change American culture and American mindset to where the revolution then could actually take place. And that's really what we're seeing today. That's why we're seeing progressive leftism, Marxism taking over academia, it's taking over all these corporations, the government, everything is taking. Like man, where did this come from? Well, it's been 60 years in the making. This mm-hmm. didn't just happen overnight. They have Oh, it's more than 60. More, yeah, more than 60 mm-hmm. years, yes. Um but now, the younger generations more and more are in line with this idea of systemic racism, this idea that America is fundamentally racist, the idea that you have to tear down the system, tear down the patriarchy, all of these different heteronormality, you know, heterosexual normality all these things that we define ourselves by must go, right? Yep. And ironically, whenever they talk about what comes up in its place, what must be rebuilt is always Marxism. Because the goal is equal outcomes. The only way you, uh, or quote unquote, what they call equity. Yeah. Right. And so until there is equity, until this new system produces equal outcomes among all groups, in their mind, there's work to be done and there's injustice because justice is only served when everyone has equal outcomes, not equal opportunity, not equality, equal outcomes, AKA equity. And so that's their whole goal. And that's what they believe justice is. They think they're in the right. They believe this with all of their heart. They might be good people, quote unquote, but this is what their aim is. And I think a lot of people need to wake up and understand that that's what they're saying. That's what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, And so that's that's
2: One of the things that I was thinking about as he was talking about, you know, this Big change versus incrementalism is a definition of critical of critical race theory in a book by um, Richard Delgado and Jane Stefancic called Critical Race Theory an Introduction. Now, both of these people, one they're married, but two they were at the founding or you know originating of critical race theory back in the late eighties, and they are self avowed Marxists, and they've written a book as a, a you know an introductory guide to what is critical race theory. So I want to read this definition because it went in line with what he was saying. So it says that critical race, the critical race theory movement. So one, it is a movement um, is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. And so what he's talking about is this activist component, this um, transformation that must occur within society. And so it is that um, if you are t- having these conversations about you know race from this critical race theory point of view or systemic racism from this disparate outcomes point of view, more often than not, your goal is to transform the entire society and their relationship to power. Power is the main key in this conversation is who is going to hold the power. And if we have disparate outcomes among people with no power, it's always going to be seen as racist.
0: Yes. And the fallacy of that is they view power simply by group. If I have power, does that mean that black people have power? Hmm. Are my decisions formed based on skin color? If I have power and I choose to wield that power in some unrighteous way, then that's on me. Right. But the idea that if I was in power, you were in power, then that I mean that blacks are in power. That's a fallacy in thinking. It is the idea that people operate simply along group lines, right. And group thinking, group power, um, And it's it's just a fallacy in the understanding of how human nature and human beings actually operate. Um, Because I've always found it very interesting that on one hand, they would make this charge against white people about um, white people operate within the interests of their group. But at the same time, they criticize white people for not having a race consciousness. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how can both be true? How can mm-hmm. we have how can we have books like White Awake and all these things about white yes. need to be aware of their whiteness and a race consciousness, but then at the same time accuse them of operating within a race consciousness? It just makes no sense. But there I go again using logic and reason. And um that's my whiteness that I've it really first, is. I've been internalizing, you know, for I feel years. oppressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying I'm just saying two things that
2: yeah. both of those things can't be true yes
0: you know and so
2: that it can if you're not using you know rationale or logic
0: I guess so but um but yeah so I'm, so I'm glad you you use that definition from primary source because that's a lot of things people get criticized for um, and I thought it was really in line in, with what he was saying but I also know you have a quote to close us out on from Thaddeus Williams on the idea of biblical justice versus social justice. So, yes. Yeah. So why don't you close us out by reading Thaddeus's quote?
2: Yeah. So Thaddeus has an article out. um, It came out back in 2021 around the same time as this interview came out and it's called thinking biblically about systemic injustice. And I really thought that um, a couple of sentences in here really looked at injustice from the biblical point of view. And that is really what's important for us as believers is what does the Bible say about justice? How do we do justice? Is every um, unequal outcome a form of injustice? Do we see unequal outcomes in in the scriptures or is everything equal? And so let me read this and um, then I'll turn it back over to you. If we infuse the term systemic and injustice with biblical meaning, then systemic injustice is any system that either requires or encourages those within the system to break the moral laws God revealed for his creatures flourishing. That is the implicit biblical definition that empowered Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth to subvert the systems of American slavery. But that is not the way many of today's Trending visions of social justice define systemic injustice. If we can't tell the difference between systemic injustice and biblical justice or injustice, then we may think we are doing justice for God and for the oppressed when we are really doing the bidding of political ideologues. And that is often so much of what I see is that you get Christians who believe they're doing justice, but without a true biblical understanding of what justice is, and really they're advocating for things like race in technology or abortion or, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, I know somebody that argues that abortion is a justice issue, like not the stopping of it, but that women need access to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're, they're supposed to be a Christian. Um, But at the end of the day, we do realize, and that's what I kind of hope people get out of this is that this is an ideology. This is a political ideology that's meant to bring about a certain outcome. They're against something And what that something is, is basically European culture. That's that's the easiest way I can put it. They are against what they view as European culture being dominant within American society. Um, And then therefore it is oppressive to other groups. Um, So even something like assimilation would be viewed as something that is bad that's why Asians get a bad rap as being white adjacent because whites apparently assimilate into the culture and they flourish within the culture but instead of that being praised that's not because they're simply perpetuating white supremacy right and so once you understand the framework once you understand the ideology everything they say it doesn't make sense but you understand how it makes sense to them and so Yeah. So throughout our podcast, that's one of the things I hope people get out of. They start to really grasp and understand what it is they're hearing. So when they hear these people talk, they pick up on what they're saying. And so um, with that being said, I mean, I think that's a wrap for another episode.
2: I think so, too. I I would take it one step further, though. And I would say that, yes, it is against the white Western European way of of thinking and doing things. But in true reality, like at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. Yep, go ahead. Our battle is flesh and blood. And when you dig deep into critical theory, it is against the Uh, Judeo-Christian worldview. It is against God, period. This is beyond skin color. This is... A, and it, it's not to be like conspiracy theorists or things like that, but this is an all out assault against the Judeo-Christian worldview. Yes, we are logical people. We base our our lives on evidence. The Bible is based on evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that that. Whiteness isn't the nuclear family is being considered a part of whiteness. Being kind is considered a part of whiteness. Look up that infographic that we showed earlier. This is an assault and and, and, uh, uh, an affront to the Judeo-Christian worldview. Yes. Not just to someone's skin color.
0: You're right. And I should have took it a step further because one thing that they don't recognize from a historical standpoint is the effect of Christianity on the development of European culture. Right. Uh, uh. That's what they they overlook. And so when they think they're simply attacking European culture, what they're really attacking is a lot of biblical, what we call Christian Judeo values and beliefs. Right. Um, And so, yeah, you're right. That that is really what it comes down to. And that's why it is so damaging when it comes into the church, because we've seen Christians adopt these things. And the first thing they start tearing away is biblical doctrine. Right. You go ahead and preach. I'm just gonna sit here. You go ahead. (laughs) I mean, I know we've gone over what we normally go over, so we're not gonna go into it. But yeah, a lot of these, that's the first thing they do is they tear down biblical doctrine because you already mentioned things like the family. The next thing that typically falls is sexuality. And the next thing you know, they are adopting all the views of the ideology, which, you know, we didn't get into intersectionality and have all of these different oppression groups tied together within this ideology. But you can't simply hold to the race justice part without grasping the rest of it. And so before you know it, you're queer affirming and all of these types of things. And so um, Christians need to realize that they're not fighting, quote unquote, white supremacy. He already told you that's not his definition. They're not talking about actual races or actual mm-hmm. white supremacists with clan hoods. and all. That's not what they're talking about. So stop thinking that's what you're fighting. It's not. Um, you're not even, and that's why they really shouldn't even reference history because history, when we think about racism within history or, or racist within history, that's what our minds go to. That's not who they're quote unquote fighting today. That's not what they are fighting today. They are fighting really something that doesn't even exist. I would say it's almost like they're fighting, um, ghosts or dragons, right? And they find them everywhere. Um, Leonidas Johnson in his book, he talks about the guy who's a dragon slayer. He kills the last dragon Mm -hmm. and he's retired. But in his retirement, because of that's all he's done, his identity has been fighting dragons. He started to see dragons everywhere and he's out there swinging his sword, just swinging, killing dragons. But in reality, there's nothing there. He's just fighting ghosts because he can't can't move on because his identity is in fighting dragons. And that's that's how these people who are all about race, all about injustice, social justice, no matter how much they win, no matter the last dragon is slayed, they will still be out there slaying dragons and finding them everywhere because their identity is rooted in it.
2: So, And because they get your vote when they tell you that, you know, they killed oh, another dragon. Oh, oh, yeah. And they make a lot of money. Don't play no games. To sell oh. a lot of books, make a lot of money. We need to do a show on intersectionality and really break it down.
0: Let's do it. Let's, let's, yes. put that train, let's put that train together.
2: Yes. All right. I think so. I don't know. What do you guys think? Leave us a comment and let us know. All right, Kevin. Yeah. I think that's it. All right. You guys, thanks for being with us. This is a Center for Biblical Unity podcast. So go over to centerforbiblicalunity.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Support Kevin and I at the Center for Biblical Unity um, by supporting the Center for Biblical Unity. You can leave a donation at thecenterforbiblicalunity.com and it will go to support the ministry here. We thank you so much and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.